Friends, we are uh, continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians this morning, a series we've entitled Life is Spiritual. And what we mean by that is so much in the church, and this was true for the Corinthians, had become about attaining this elitist spiritual status that we forget that how we live is actually spiritual. To be spiritual is to be led by the Spirit in the realities of life, not to attain some religious super status. Uh, And we, just like the Corinthians, often get that wrong. And we're in the midst of Paul's first four chapters here. Of course, uh, he didn't write them as chapters, but this first section of his letter where he is pleading with the Corinthians to stop their divisive attitudes and practices. Uh, And so this morning we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is what it says in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 3.1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, uh, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? They're only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. You are God's building. Throughout this chapter, uh, this section of Paul's letter, he wants to really say three things about the church, uh, and therefore about individual Christians. The first is that he wants to say uh, they're to be led by the Spirit. They're to be led by the Spirit. And we're going to talk about that in the section I just read. The second thing he wants to say is that they're to be founded on Christ. That Christ is the foundation. And the third thing is that they belong to God. They belong to God. So this first section that I read has to do with being led by the Spirit. And it's become a very tricky portion of Scripture for interpreters to get their hands around. And it's been used in all kinds of different ways. Uh, some of which I think are incorrect. They come to conclusions that are okay, but the means of getting there aren't the best. I think what Paul's really doing in this section is he's defending the message he presented to the Corinthians, and he's using Corinthian language to trap the Corinthians in their own argument. Paul's good at this. He's a lawyer, right? And so he knows what he's doing. He's got the Corinthians on the stand, and he's using their own testimony to incriminate them. Uh, And so that's where some of this, the language he uses gets confusing because we sort of apply it as if it's Paul saying it's truth when he's really using it to show them they're, uh, in a sense, out of their minds. And so Paul is is doing two things here. He's he's referring back to when he first met the Corinthians, and then he's he's fast-forwarding to the present time when he's writing to the Corinthians. Uh, And he's making three observations about them when he first met them, and those three observations when he first met them are in fact pretty much still true when he's writing to them now. And so let's kind of figure this out. The first thing he says to them is that they are not spiritual, right? They're not, they don't live in the spirit. Now when he's saying this, he's referring back to when he first 
met them, right? When I came to you, this is past tense, aorist, Greek tense language. This is something that's happened in the past, not continuing to happen. They were not of the spirit. You know, your translation might say they were not spiritual. Again, we, we, that, that pneumatoikis Greek word really has to do with the idea of having the spirit, right? It's a salvation term. It is not a sanctification term. This is not about people who are not spiritual and therefore not living in their maturity to Christ. It's either you have the Spirit or you don't. Either you've trusted Christ and have the Gospel or you don't. And Paul says when he came to them, they didn't have it. They didn't have the Spirit, right? And that makes perfect sense to us. And he says also, not only did you not have the Spirit, but you were worldly, right? And the, world, the word worldly is, is really a better translation is fleshly, but that's kind of a weird word in our English language. The Greek word sarks is the word flesh, and Paul uses it tons of times to help people understand the control of their life apart from the control of the Spirit. Right? So either the Spirit's running the show, God's running the show, or you are running the show. And that, that word Paul uses for that is flesh. And so what Paul is saying to them when he says they're worldly, it's not that they watch you know, bad TV shows and listen to bad music and all the stuff that the church says is worldly. What he's saying to them is that your life is not dominated by the Spirit, it's dominated by yourself, right? When I found you, you, you didn't have a Spirit, and therefore your life was dominated by your sinful self. And so as a result, uh, what he says to them is, is you were infants in Christ. Uh, and the word infant doesn't mean little child, it means baby. Uh, and this is a cutting blow to the Corinthians because they thought of themselves as, as really elite and mature. And so basically what he's saying is, is you, you were babies, when I found you. In other words, you needed milk to drink and you couldn't get food for yourself, right? Think of babies and how cute they are and yet how burdensome they are to parents because they need help with everything, right? And they were completely dependent upon Paul. So Paul's saying, hey, when I came to you, you thought I was the greatest thing ever, right? Because you didn't know Christ. I gave you Christ. You have the spirit from the gospel uh, and, and it was helping you change from this mindset of being dominated by the sinful self to being led by the Spirit, and, and you, were, you were eating up everything I gave you because you were just babies, infants in Christ. And now what he finds out in the reporters we've been talking about all these last weeks is that they think Paul's pretty much an idiot, giving them basic stuff, and they're beyond Paul now. They're on to Apollos, and really they're on to themselves. And we found this higher plane, and enough with, with what you've said, Paul, and so Paul now is using their language of wanting solid food to say to them, that proves to me you're still babies, right? So his observations of them now in writing this letter are actually the same three things that he observed of them when he found them. That is that they are still infants because they are still fleshly, and that shows that they are more interested in human things than spirit-led things. Paul says, hey, let me read this to you again so you can see the contrast happening on here. Verse 2, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And then he says, indeed, you are still not ready. And at this moment, Paul is attacking them in exactly their opposition to him. Because they think they're ready for bigger things than just this simple gospel message. After all, we've received that and believed that. Now we need the good philosophy and wisdom, the theology, the religion that the superstructure that we build on this that brings us to our sort of spiritual elite status. And after all, they saw themselves as very spiritual. Matter of fact, they probably saw themselves as much more spiritual than Paul, because after all, he was still using this milk stuff. We need solid food, 
Paul. That's why we're following Apollos. That's why we're following all these other people. That's what this division is all about. And Paul's saying, "Uh, no, you're still babies. (laughs) You don't need solid food at all. You still need the milk. And actually, here's the little secret, I think, that helps unlock this, is that for Paul, solid food and milk are the same thing. It's the gospel. The difference is, you begin to be able to feed yourself the gospel instead of having to be fed it by someone else. But for the Corinthians, they saw it very differently. The gospel was just this entry ticket into this new whole philosophy that would change their lives. And so this new philosophical religious structure, uh, seeing themselves as elite, it was all about status for the Corinthians. So when he calls them still infants, what he's saying to them is, you are nowhere near as spiritual as you think you are. Friends, that's a message the church needs today in a big way. And by the way, me too. Because we often sit on our high horse and think, wow, my life's pretty well put together. And look at me. And and usually when we say look at me, we're looking at everyone else and thinking, those suckers, if they only had it together like I have it together. And guess what? This is exactly what's happening at the church in Corinth. Exactly what's happening at the church in Corinth. Paul's saying the solid food is the same thing as the milk. And that you're asking for the solid food actually proves to me that you still need the milk. Right? In other words, that you haven't loved the gospel for what it truly is. Because you feel feel like you need something more. To prove yourself. To have an elite status. To be valued as important. To stake out a position of power in your community. See, the deeper things come from deeper reflection on the gospel, not from some new philosophy. We say it oftentimes here at Hope. The gospel is not just the ticket to the dance. It is the dance. The gospel is everything. And Paul is trying to get that through their thick skulls, using their language to make sense of it for them. That this isn't about personal achievement spiritual status or eliteness. It's about the continuing personal humiliation that the gospel brings to us. But side by side with personal humiliation, it brings to us constant salvation. Right? Gospel keeps reminding us, you don't have it all together. Right? And we need that when we want, well, I need deeper things. I need bigger things. And the gospel smacks us in the face and says, man, you can't even get this right. You can't even live right. But then it doesn't just do that. It picks us up and saves us. It says, oh, but, but it's covered. It's paid for. Christ has given you a way where there is no way. Right? This is what Paul's saying. This is the deeper things. It's not about what Paul's not writing about, which sometimes the church has made it about oftentimes in this interpretation, is there's a such thing as carnal Christians and as mature Christians. You don't want to be a carnal Christian. You've got to grow to be a mature Christian. That's not at all in Paul's mind. He's saying either you're led by the Spirit or you aren't. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. So friends, I just pause for a moment and ask you the question, what in your life have you left the Gospel to go pursue? This is what Paul's arguing about. Well, thank you for the Gospel, Jesus, but now I'm on to solid food here. You know, is it religious sanctification? This is what we do in the church, isn't it? God, thank you so much for the gospel. Now I'm going to go make, make something good of my life religiously so that I can earn what you've done for me. What Paul would say to you is, you haven't understood the gospel. You still need milk. Forget that solid food. The gospel says you can't do anything to earn God's favor. He loves you anyway. 
What about personal growth, right? We often leave the gospel for personal growth. Well, God's got me. He's picked me up. I'm ready to go. Now I'm going to go make something of myself. That's, that's leaving the gospel. You can't make anything of yourself, right? Everything that you are is what Christ has pronounced of yourself. And listen, I'm not telling you to be a lazy slouch on the couch because Pastor Adam said you'll never make it. And that's not what I'm talking about. Work hard, pursue goals, right? All these good things that you're being told are, are good things. What I'm saying is, you will never earn a status for yourself based on your personal effort, right? You might become rich, you might become successful, but none of it will give you the status the gospel gives you. What about theological and intellectual prowess, right? Here's, the, here's an area where I'm guilty. Let's just be personal for a minute. It's very easy for me to leave the gospel to pursue, to pursue intellectual nuances of theology, right? And then discovering things and understanding them and maybe feeling like I can understand them better than other people, right? And then I become Corinthian in my thinking, like, oh, I've got a better grasp on this than the rest of these people. They need me to come teach them every Sunday, you know? Maybe you're kind of like me. It's the intellectual things, right? Sometimes you'll hear this in a church, and sometimes it's actually true because what's being preached in a church is far from the gospel. It's self-help. But people will say, well, I need something more. Right? No, you need the gospel constantly. What about this? Maybe this is the bigger thing in the church. Sort of the spirituality that is built on self-promotion. Right? In other words, your whole spiritual life is about proving to the people around you that you're spiritual. You ever, ever seen that happen? Right? In your life? You ever seen that happen? Yeah, of course you have. Because we're flawed and broken. So much of Christianity is about departing for the gospel for bigger things. And can I just tell you, the bigger things are in the depth of the gospel, not apart from it. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. That you're pursuing these things proves to me, Paul says, that you still need the milk of the gospel. And he says, and if you want actual physical evidential proof, let me give you two things. Right? He says, first, first thing he says is that you're still worldly. Right? And the two things he lists underneath them, that is that you, you exhibit jealousy and quarreling. Right? You exhibit jealousy and quarreling. What Paul is basically saying is if you want proof that the gospel hasn't come to rest deeply in your life, it's your conduct. It's how you behave. And the two things I see from you are jealousy and quarreling constantly. Why why does divisiveness happen in the church today and in the church in Corinth? Because people are jealous. They want power and status. They want esteem. They want to be looked at as something. And so we move forward, even subconsciously, because we're jealous for something other than God. You see it? Paul's saying, that's proof to me that you don't know the gospel. And quarreling. This constant bickering and divisiveness that's going on in the church. Positioning against each other. Uh, This this idea of constant comparison, right? The the spirituality of comparison is a a, a noose around the neck of Christians in the church, and yet it happens all the time. This is what's happening in Corinth, you know? I gotta be better than you, I gotta be better than you, I gotta be, you know, I pray longer than you. Did you read your Bible this morning? No, well, I did, that's good, you know. You know, are you praying for ten missionaries? You're only praying for six, so that makes me feel better. You know, like, 
And so we get this status. Well, I'm following Apollos because he gives a, a stronger message than Paul. You're just following Paul? You haven't reached to the higher things yet? You're still in the milk? And we kind of look at that, and even in the church. I know it's difficult to admit, but come on, let's just be honest here. That's what quarreling comes out of. Quite literally, what's happening as a result of their quarreling is that they are ripping apart the church, which Paul says is the body of Christ. Now tell me what the imagery of ripping apart the body of Christ is. It's crucifixion, is it not? And crucifixion is a result of flesh. And the opposite of it is the unity of the body of Christ, which only happens through the Spirit because of resurrection. You see it? Paul's saying it's proof to me that you don't understand the gospel, that you still need milk. And then he ends by saying, you're acting like mere humans. <laughs> Which, you know, like sometimes when my kids, Tyler or Jackson or whatever, they'll complain or grumble about something, and I'll say, man, you're acting like such a child. And I'm like, oh, you are a child. <laughs> That's how I feel like when Paul's writing this to the Corinthians. You're acting like mere humans. Well, wait a minute. They are mere humans. And that's the point Paul's trying to make. Do you see it? The brilliance in his argumentation here is that stop thinking of yourself as more than you are. Admit who you are. You're merely humans. You're broken. You're desperate for the gospel. What do humans do? What's in our human nature is to look to other, in human nature, to look to humanity for salvation and growth. Right? We, mostly we look to ourselves. But sometimes we look to the people we trust around us who we see as higher than us to try to pull ourselves up to where they are. This is what the Corinthians are doing. Who are they using specifically? Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or Peter, and themselves in the name of Jesus. And Paul is saying, listen, these humans that you're looking to, by the way, I'm talking about myself, we're servants. And the, and the analogy Paul uses of servants here is they're, they're working in a harvest. So they are basically, what he would say of himself, just put it into context today, is they are migrant field workers. Right? This is what Paul values himself of, you know? Paul says, hey, we're just migrant field workers. We're out there just doing the hard, laborious jobs that no one wants to do. You know? And who assigns those jobs? God himself assigned their jobs. And God will reward them for what they do. So, so you don't have to live into that. Instead, have a recon- recognition for what God has done. That is that Paul says what? That God causes all things to grow. Paul, wa- Paul plants, Apollos waters, but God makes it grow. So stop looking to Paul or Apollos to get you to where you need to be. Only God can do it. Catch it? Only God can do it. Now, is Paul saying that You shouldn't follow Paul or shouldn't follow Apollos? Of course not. You need to be mentored and discipled. And Paul will say in all of chapter 4, listen, you need to follow me. It's going to seem kind of, wait a minute, he's taking a left turn here. You need to follow me. But what he's saying is you need to follow me so that you connect to God, not to me. Paul says this all the time. Because ultimately, what does Paul say here? That the harvest, that is the field, belongs to God. And this happens all through the Old Testament. The language that God uses for his people is that, that, that their inheritance is the land that God gives them, but God's inheritance is them. So that the people of God are actually God's inheritance. So Paul is turning the argument completely on his side, saying, not only should you look to God, but duh, you belong to 
God. You're not mine. I don't own you. I just planted a seed. And Apollos just watered it. You belong to God. He's the only one that's going to see you through to the harvest. And you're His. And that you are harvested is to His glory. Of course He's going to see it through. You see this. See, the Spirit-led life, friends, is not necessarily some mystic, sort of higher plane, following God and living this ultra-spiritual life that's so apart. Spirit-led life always leads you to the Gospel. Always. If it's leading you somewhere else, can I just tell you why Paul says, test the spirits. It's always leading to the Gospel. We'll find in a second, it's always leading you to Christ. And therefore, it's always leading you to two realities. Humility. I'm not who I think I am. And therefore, dependence upon God. I need the one who owns me. Stop trying to make a name for myself. You know, what stalk of corn ever planted itself, ever watered itself, or ever harvested itself? And yet, this is how we live. You know? And Paul's saying, this is enough already. Spirit-led life always goes to the gospel. Call it milk, call it solid food, call it whatever you want. It's the gospel. And it stays there and it mines the depths of the gospel. And all the deeper things of God are found in the depth of the gospel. And as a result of it, it doesn't lead to personal achievement, which is what we've called spirituality in the church. It leads to greater humility. And therefore greater dependence upon God. Now Paul turns, he says, hey, listen, it's not just God's field that you are, you're actually God's building. And the second thing he wants to say is that you're founded on Jesus. So let's, let's keep reading here in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. So Paul says, by the grace that God has given me, I've laid a foundation as a wise builder. And he'll say in a second that the foundation is Christ. Now he uses this word wise not to puff himself up, but because he's been talking about wisdom for several sections now, right? He's been saying, hey, you guys think you're wise. You think wisdom is in human wisdom. Divine wisdom is the gospel, Paul says. And so Paul says, when I've built and laid the foundation here, it's been all about Jesus and therefore it's wise because it's divine wisdom. You see, he's still countering what's going on here. Paul says, I've laid the foundation which is Christ and it's, I've done so wisely, not because I have wisdom, but because I've allowed it in the power of the Spirit. And he says, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. Paul says, okay, I'm not there anymore. Right? I've laid the foundation. We've done it wisely because we made it all about the gospel. But it's not just going to stay this slab forever. Stuff's going to be built on it. Whatever it is, you're letting be built on it. And he's saying that each one should take care. So he's saying this is a message. He's writing to the whole church. It's a message to everyone. Right? It's not just to the pastor. It's not just to Apollos. It's not just to the leader. It's everyone. And oh, by the way, let me let you into a secret here. This structure that Paul is talking about is the church, not an individual. Right? We've misunderstood that oftentimes in Scripture here too. This is about the church. Because it's about the church, it's necessarily about the individual too because you're part of the church. But this is a corporate speak. And Paul's basically saying, so be very, very careful what you subject yourself and the church to. 
Paul's laid a, a wise foundation that is the Gospel. So you better be very careful what you let be built on it and what you build on it, not just in your own life, but into the life of other people. This is why the role of the pastor is so important because he helps shape that, right? What's going on. So this is what Paul says. Listen to this. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid. The foundation's already there. It's the Gospel, which is Jesus Christ. Can't go anywhere. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire uh, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved. Even though only as one escaping through Flames. Paul says be very careful what you build on the foundation of the gospel in Christ. And basically, let me just summarize this as as succinctly as I can. What he's saying is, if the foundation is the gospel in Christ, then the structure you build on it better be the gospel in Christ. And not some other religious superstructure or philosophical superstructure or moralistic superstructure. It needs to be the same thing. And, And the way he goes into that is to use this illustration that it should be built with gold, silver, and costly stones, not wood, hay, and straw. Because when fire comes, one set of things will be preserved, and the other set of things will be consumed by the fire. Now, he's wanting to say two things about gold, silver, and costly uh, stones. The first is that they're imperishable, right? They're going to last. But he's also making a really important allusion to the temple of Solomon, which was built with these very things in the Old Testament. And he's about to say, as we'll find out very soon, that the church, oh, by the way, is the new temple. So he's very necessarily saying that. He's saying, build with these things. Build build with with the good things, with the gospel, with Christ, with with the truth that you've given, so that when the day comes, it won't be consumed, but it will stand tall. Now this word, day... It's probably capitalized in your Bible. And that's because it uh, refers to an Old Testament concept called the Day of the Lord. And the Day of the Lord refers to sort of the end of all things. Basically, it has a threefold kind of understanding in the Old Testament. Uh, It refers to the tribulation that is to come in the end of days. Now, the church uh, has differed on what they make of the tribulation. I'm not here this morning to try to give you a perfect understanding. If you're interested in my understanding... Let's talk, right? I think the tribulation's already underway. Tribulation that's there, right? It also refers to the return of Christ, and it also thirdly refers to the reign of Christ. Now, it's very clear in the context here that Paul is talking about the tribulation part of the day of the Lord because he's saying it's going to come with fire, right? The judgment of the tribulation that that the Old Testament speaks of. And, And so what you build on will happen. So can I, can I just make it just as plain as I can this morning, right? Whether you believe the tribulation is yet to come or is now, tribulation is happening now. And testing and difficult circumstances of life are happening now. And a church that is not built on the gospel and built with the gospel will fold like a house of cards in the midst of testing. And friends, it happens all the time. Likewise, your life will fold like a house of cards if it is not built on the gospel 
and built with the gospel. But if the trials come and after the fact you see standing before you a still well-built structure, it says it's to your reward. And I, I could mean a bunch of things. My, my take on this, and this is not straight from God, but my take on it is it, it's, a, it's an increase to your faith. Right? So you look and say, oh, wait a minute. This is bigger than my life. Right? It survived a massive diagnosis. It survived massive persecution. It survived uh, earth-shattering relational strife. But much of what we build will not survive. And we see that constantly in our life. It's why we're such broken people. We build with a lot of wood and hay and stubble and things like that. And we wonder when the tough times come why it falls. Why our religious efforts don't help us. Why our systematic theology can't help us make sense of suffering. Right? It's difficult things. But what's so interesting about this to me is that Paul announces not only rescue for the people who have built with the gospel, he announces rescue for anyone who has the foundation of the gospel. And basically what he's saying is that even if trial breaks down all the superstructure you've built, you will still find yourself with an undeniable foundation that is Jesus. And perhaps you'll even be able to thank God because now you can build correctly, straight from the foundation again. You see it? Paul says it perhaps much more impassionedly than I do. Surviving as if through flames, he says, you know. We, uh, when we moved into our house, um, our house was old and dilapidated and had this big backyard. And out in the backyard sat this horrific looking shed. I mean, there was poison ivy covering the whole back of it. There were massive holes in it. I think there were raccoons living in it. There was all kinds of weird stuff in it. And it was bad, and like I said to Rachel, oh, we're going to use this. And Rachel, you know, as, as a great wife does, says, oh, yeah, we'll use it, honey. You keep using it. And so we used it for like a year, and it, you know, it was awful. And so finally, like, we're just like going to have to get rid of this thing. And I think <laughs> we just leaned hard against it and <laughs> came shattering down, you know, and called the garbage company, and they came and pulled it away. But on the bottom of it is this, this perfect level unblemished cement slab but now hosts our outside patio furniture you know but it was completely unblemished and this I think is the picture of what happens when you go through the storms of life when the church goes through the persecution of the world that even if you have built wrongly this is the gospel friends this is the gospel even if you have built wrongly the foundation stays you see it and you have the second chance to build anew. Paul's saying to them, so stop all your terrible building, you know, and build it the right way. Spirit-led life always, always is about the gospel. It's always about building the church, building your life on the foundation of Christ. In fact, Jesus promised and gave basically the MO of what the Spirit's role in the world would be. In John chapter 14, verse 26. And he said, When the Advocate comes, he will constantly remind you of all that I have taught you. This is the role of the Spirit. To constantly point you back to Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. The Gospel. Spirit-led life is always about the Gospel. Always about 
being centered on Christ. Always about building with the right things that last through the test. And then lastly this morning, Paul says, and this really is what he's been driving at the whole time, you belong to God. You belong to God. You know? And if you get the you belong to God right, then he's assuming you're going to have the foundation right and you'll be led by the Spirit to build the superstructure right. Listen what he says. <clears throat> Verse 16, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Right? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. For God's temple is sacred. Uh, and you together are, are that temple. This is the church. And Paul's saying anyone that comes to destroy the church, God's going to destroy them. Do you see it? Basically, anyone that comes with a message other than the gospel and makes it superior, God's going to deal with you. Right? And deal with you harshly. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may be wise. This old saying, I forget who said it, it basically says, better to be silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Ever heard that, that saying before? And Paul's almost saying that here, isn't he? Like, hey, let the world think you're foolish. You know that, you're, that you've chosen wisdom. Who cares if they're calling you foolish? You're building on the right thing. And you're building with the right thing. Let them call you foolish constantly. And, and, and friends, the world will tell you you are foolish. Right? Oh, you're following Jesus? The religion? Well, no, no, it's not religion. Well, they won't understand it that way, right? You, wait a minute. You're, you're giving, you're setting aside money to, to bless other people? That's not wise. You should be investing in your 401k. Right? You'll constantly be called a fool if you follow the gospel. But you will only do it if you believe that you belong to God. right? Because he's going to see you through to the harvest. He's the one that not only takes care of the watering, the planting and the watering, but he harvests and you are for his glory. So be thought a fool. Verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As is written... I love this. I believe this is from Job. Uh, he catches the wise in their craftiness. <laughs> right? In, in essence, that's what Paul has just done through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Catches those who think they're wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders, Corinthians. All things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, everything is yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. If you belong to God, right, and you believe rightly that everything belongs to God, then mathematically everything belongs to you. Not in the way of power as we pursue it, but in the way of gift. That is that you've been given all that you need. You see it? This is the message of the gospel. And so Paul gets right around to saying that it is God's dream. It is the heartbeat of God that a harvest, that a great building, in fact a temple, would arise in the city of Corinth for the glory of God. Not for the glory of man, 
Not because a couple of guys gave their life to work hard on it. They were just planting and watering. But the church, the temple, would arise in united fashion to be this massive testimony to the presence and reality of God for the glory of God so that the looking on city would see it and say, whoa, that's big. And the Corinthians get this better than we could ever get it because their city was full of temples, right? In fact, it was well known for the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And they understood in a city, one God, one temple. And that this temple would be an alternative to all the other temples. Do you see, the world is not literally, but is figuratively erecting thousands of things that people should worship. And you can send people onto street corners. We can podcast my sermons. We can, we can send out creative things as much as we want. That doesn't make any, a hill of beans of difference. But when a harvest and a temple arise that is a united local church, right, given to unity, even though very different, then the world looks and says, wait a minute, maybe God is real. They have excuses for all the other ways God has blessed or shown his glory, right? God says, I demonstrate my glory through creation. The world says, well, look at that sunset. That's pretty. But we know that it's God. The world doesn't. They have excuses for it. One thing they cannot have an excuse for is when a whole bunch of broken, selfish, prideful jerks lower themselves to pursue unity for the glory of God and join together in this radical mission that is establishing the kingdom of God for His glory, living out the truth of the gospel, there's no excuse to push that away. It's very easy to push church and religion away as some other social platitude. But when this rises up, the world takes notice and says, whoa, this is real. And this is to the glory of God. So, stop building on the foundation of the gospel with foolish things. Self-effort, religion, morals, philosophy, how-to, personal improvement, self-focused spirituality, systematic theology to make yourself seem brilliant. You know, All of those things are good things if rightly ordered and instead, rise up in unity, church. Because of and for the gospel. It will only happen if you believe you belong to God and therefore are led by the Spirit. And then I promise you that this city that once was founded for the cause of Christ will take notice. But not until then. No special programs, no special events, no podcast, no preacher, no telethon, no whatever. will matter anything. But if the true church rises, and by that I even mean beyond us as a local church, right? The, in unity, the world will take notice. This is the plan of God. This is the gospel. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit. Not into self-achievement, but into the constant humility and salvation of the gospel founded solely on Christ because we belong to God, trusting Him above all things, but living in submission one to the other so that the gospel may be known. Can I pray with you?